Welcome to Givers, Doers, and Thinkers. Today, we talk to acclaimed journalist Christopher Caldwell about the surprising implications of the reforms of the 1960s, including civil rights legislation for American community. Let's go. Givers, Doers, and Thinkers introduces listeners to the fascinating people and important ideas at the heart of American civil society. We speak with philanthropists, nonprofit leaders, social entrepreneurs, historians, journalists, and anyone else who will help us understand contemporary civil society's achievements and failures. We also sprinkle in practical advice for nonprofit leaders and fundraisers. My name is Jeremy Beer, and thanks for joining us. All right. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Givers, Doers, and Thinkers. I am your host, Jeremy Beer, coming to you today, October 28th, 2021, from sunny, beautiful Phoenix, Arizona. And today I am honored to have as my guest uh, a writer that I have been following for years and really appreciate, Mr. Christopher Caldwell, author most recently of The Age of Entitlement, America Since the 60s, a truly splendid uh, book, um, which argues just to use the language of the publisher, that, quote, the reforms of the 1960s, reforms intended to make the nation more just and humane, left many Americans feeling alienated, despised, misled, and ready to put an adventurer in the White House, end quote. And that is, in fact, I think quite a good summary of the book, although we'll get Chris's opinion of that. Uh, Christopher Caldwell is a contributing uh, editor at the Claremont Review of Books, also a contributing opinion writer at the New York Times. He was formerly a senior editor at the Weekly Standard and an opinion columnist for the Financial Times. The Age of Entitlement was published in early 2020 by Simon & Schuster. And uh, Mr. Caldwell is also the author of Reflections on the Revolution in Europe, Immigration, Islam, and the West, another fantastic book. Today, however, we will talk mostly, I think, about the argument uh, presented in the age of entitlement because the story uh, Mr. Caldwell lays out impinges directly on the core interest of this podcast, uh, civil society, which I know at some point in this conversation, I'm going to have to define for him. He has already warned me that. So, uh, Chris, welcome. Uh, it's great to be here. <laughs> so, yeah, whenever you're ready to make me define civil society, if we come to that, I will. I'm going to do my best uh, to do so. Um, thanks for joining us. Um, where are you? Where are you talking to us from today, Chris? Uh, from Washington D.C. Very good. I know you've been in Europe doing, uh, working on um, your reporting. Uh, so, thank you so much for for joining us. So, I thought I would just start out there very early in in, in the book. You sort of lay out a sort of thesis statement. Um, and I thought maybe we'll just start out by sort of parsing that uh, term by term, phrase by phrase to sort of allow you to um, unfold the argument uh, that you make in the book, the points you make. And here, here's that statement. The Age of Entitlement is, quote, a book about the crises out of which the 1960s order arose, the means by which it was maintained, and the contradictions at its heart that by the time of the presidential election of 2016 had led a working majority of Americans to view it, it being here the 1960s order, not as a gift, but as an oppression, end quote. So I think that gives us plenty, there's plenty of meat on that bone <laughs> for us to go over. So let me ask you, let's start by articulating what were the crises out of which the 1960s order arose in your view? Well, you know, I, I'd stress to start with that, you know, we're talking about theses and arguments, and there are certainly theses and arguments in the book, but the book itself is a, uh, is a history. It's a, it's a narrative um, rather than a manifesto. But, uh, but there certainly are some, some arguments, fairly strongly asserted arguments in, in the book. Um, I would say that, that, that one of them is that the central reform of the 1960s 
um, much more important than, um, you know, anything that happened around Vietnam or feminism or, or drugs or, or folk music, um, was the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which became the template for all sorts of other reforms and, um, and sort of most of the major uh, let's say, changes in American society uh, since then. So since that is the case, I would have to say that the, the main crisis out of which the 1960s arose was, um, was that of racial segregation mm-hmm. in, uh, in, in the American South. It's an interesting thing, but you know, if you look at the polls, you see beyond the shadow of a doubt that, that the great majority of Americans thought of that as a local crisis not as a national crisis. If you asked Americans how they felt blacks were being treated in their neighborhood, in their state, uh, you'd get upwards of 80% saying just fine, just like you and me. So rightly or wrongly, Americans um, perceived that crisis as um, something that was happening in one backward corner of one very backward part of the country. But I should add that, you know, it's not just crises that, you know, there were other crises. There was the Cold War. Um, and it's not just crises that, that led us to that, to, to that moment. There were also triumphs. I mean, the United States, after having had a pretty rocky uh, 1930s, had managed to vanquish totalitarianism on, on two continents and um, now bestrode the world like a colossus. And um, so that, yes, there was a problem, there was a crisis, but there was also a, a, a sense of confidence in the United States, perhaps overconfidence, you could say, uh, that the country's never had before or since. You also mentioned that um, the Civil Rights Act of 64 and the Voter Rights Act of 65 were, I think your words are, they were memorials to a slain leader in the, in the person of JFK. How, how, did, how did that assassination of, of sort of open the door for this new template? You know, there had been um, civil rights acts before. There was one right in the aftermath of, um, of the Civil War. Um, there was one in 1957, you know, in Eisenhower's presidency, um, which was sort of shepherded through the Senate by, by Lyndon Johnson. Uh, the Kennedys, you know, being Northeasterners, had a, they had a sympathy to the, um, let's say, the ideals of the desegregationists. Um, but they were also in a party that was more conservative than it was now, that they were also getting the votes of many Southerners. And they were, let's just say, in the early part of the Kennedy administration, you had a promising civil rights bill, but it was not progressing the way a lot of progressives in the Democratic uh, Party had hoped it would. And at the, you know, the, the March on Washington of 1963, that was a, you know, that was a protest march. And it was just two months before Kennedy was shot. Almost as soon as Kennedy was shot, Lyndon Johnson became, began describing all of the, 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 the programs that he wanted to pass mm-hmm. as things that we had to pass to honor, you know, the, the, the life and, 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 and heroism of our martyred president. He talked about um, civil rights that way, but he also talked about tax cuts that way. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's funny, conservatives in American politics often talk about the Kennedy um, tax cuts as a great, to make a case for, for supply side, um, you know, economic. Right. It was actually Johnson who passed the tax cuts. It was Kennedy who who proposed. Mm-hmm. Now that's interesting. We should come back to that later when you sort of because in your book you pair the sort of um, 
uh, what we think of as Reagan era um, belief in supply side economics, tax cuts, et cetera. You pair that with the um, <clears throat> rise of sort of the counterculture, if you want to put it that way, or the, the sort of the cultural and social side of the 1960s order as sort of being two sides of the same coin. But that's to anticipate. Yeah, I think two sides of the same coin is one way to put it. Another metaphor would be that that there was a sort of a that there was an ethic of liberation, which right. was uh, uh, oriented towards, um, you know, 20-year-olds in the 1960s, but towards 40-year-olds in the 1980s. It's very reminiscent of uh, Helen Andrews's book on the boomers. That sort of, that sort of, you can sort of narrate the la- history of the last 60 years as sort of like the narration of like, um, you know, sort of catering to a certain generation and its desires and its particular uh, prejudices and uh, principles. Yeah, that's a, book, that's a book that I have a very high opinion of, um, the boomers. Yeah. So let's then get back to the the statement. So the, you laid out the, the crises. Then the you use this phrase, the nineteen sixties order. Uh, and what did that order consist? Uh, uh, what were the key components of this new order? Um, here's where the baby boom comes into it. I my idea, I think, at the beginning was to write something about the the sweep of American political life. You know, over the half century between the you know. The assassination of John F. Kennedy and the um, and the election of of Donald Trump, and um, I think that when you look at that period, one way to look at it is the progression through the you know um, through the life cycle of the baby boomers that covers pretty much their entire adult life. Um, another way to look at it is as the elaboration of a new way of doing politics, which is the way that was laid out in the. Um, Civil Rights Act of 1964, and that it is that comes to have so much power that it's um, that it is capable of overriding what Americans think of as their political culture, mm-hmm. um, and and sometimes even their constitution. So you could almost call it um, a rival constitution. It right. was the so the the civil rights style of doing politics um, became a sort of second constitution through which you could override the first. Um, and and by, the, by the 1960s order, you know, let's, it might help to just remember, you know, what was, in, what was in the Civil Rights Act, you know, just briefly. You know, there were, you know, there were bans on discrimination in many walks of life, you know, in voting, in public accommodations, in, in public facilities, in schools, in every new institution. And then there were all sorts of institutions that were invented or expanded to uh, enforce it. There were, there was a civil rights commission, there was the EEOC for employment. Um, perhaps most importantly, there were the offices of civil rights in every uh, cabinet department. And those institutions were given the power of the purse. That is, the, the, the federal government could now cut off money to states. It could it could cut off education grants. It could bring local economies um, to its its knees. Um, it could also file lawsuits. It could conduct um, investigations. It could throw people in jail. And by creating a whole bunch of new crimes, it empowered individuals in the, in society to go out and become sort of vigilante enforcers of civil rights through right. civil suits. So there was pressure to to change coming from like a dozen different directions. 
There had never been laws like this in the United States. They were designed to create criminal, legal, and social pressure all at the same time. Now, you know, you might say that um, that, that was an appropriate response to such a serious and long-standing uh, problem as the American race problem, particularly as it existed in the South. Um, but soon got applied to other problems. You had you had groups of people who um, felt themselves um, excluded from American life. And whereas before one would have said, um, well, you know, these things take time, you're only an immigrant, or, you know, right. um, and, 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 you know, it take, sometimes takes a couple generations, or I know there are no women executives in this corporation, but, you know, keep working and that'll come later in your life. Now these people began to say, I can't wait. My injustice is a burning injustice. And I want it. I'm, I'm not content to wait until, you know, the time ripens and legislation arrives. I want this new short circuiting of the system that's provided for in the civil rights legislation to be used for my own grievances as a woman or as an immigrant you know, or, or, or as a gay or as a, right. a you know, eventually right. as a transgender person. And so it began to become an alternative model of government. And it was in, and this model was intention, let us say, with a lot of things in the constitution, um, you know, often in, in, in the first amendment. That's what I mean by the 1960s order. You also, I think, point out that um, most Americans, a vast majority of Americans, I sort of had no idea that, that this is what they were getting, uh, you know, with the Civil Rights Act of 64 and associated legislation, but that some people did know it, that some of the figures um, involved in um, uh, advancing and promoting this, not just this new legislation, but this new style of uh, governance uh, in accord maybe with, with the ethic of liberation, as you put it before. They did know what they were doing. Is that, is that correct? I think that's right. You know, um, Robert Bork, the distinguished um, jurist from Yale, you know, um, famous for his today for his antitrust doctrines, um, whose, um, you know, nomination uh, to the Supreme Court in 1987 was derailed uh, by a number of, um, of liberal activists. One of their major objections to him was that he had been an opponent of, of the Civil Rights Act on the grounds, somewhat similar to the ones I've laid out, mm -hmm. that it would spread to other things, that it had no logical stopping point. But it must be said that there were others, um, like the Harvard sociologist Orlando Patterson, who also saw that it would not have a stopping point and thought that that was a good thing. Um, that is, Patterson said, this is going to run through a lot of long-established, uh, let's say, hierarchies and and cultural institutions um, that have also been oppressive, and it's going to leave us in a very different place. And and I think that for the most part, he was optimistic about that. Also, talk about the two different perspectives on on civil rights: the perpetrator perspective and the victim perspective. Um, with that, with those two perspectives, just map on pretty well to the Bork and Patterson perspectives you just outlined, or is that something different? Yes, I think they do. You know, one thing I I should say is that there's a there's an anthology of since it's being much talked about now of critical race theory um, writings that came out in the in the 1990s which was actually very useful to me it was very um, uh, it's a very helpful uh, uh, alternative way of looking at a lot of um, 
a lot of these questions, which is not the way I usually tend to look at them. But there was a great early critical race theorist um, uh, at I, I believe he taught in in, in Minnesota um, named Alan David Freeman, and he was the the one who came up with this victim perpetrator distinction. And he said that when you have a um, a reform of an unequal society, the people it's very difficult to get a reform that's going to um, please both sides because the people who have been the victims of that inequality, um, and in the case of segregation, that would be blacks, they want the specific damage that was done to them remedy. They want to see specific things change. They want, you know, they, they've lost jobs, money, and social prestige, and they want it restored. All right. They look at it as a pragmatic question. The perpetrators who, in the case of segregation, would be uh, whites. They look at this as primarily a moral question, and they um, they don't really feel that restitution is necessary. What they tend to feel is they just want to make sure that everyone is is acting in a responsible way, and you just stop the old system and begin acting responsibly. And so, it's uh, although it looks like an objective reality, there is a there is a very different reading of it necessarily depending on where you're coming from. That makes sense. I want to go back uh, before we go to a break and just pick up on the point you made earlier about sort of a rival constitution arising out of this new um, style of governance, essentially. It's a way of overcoming or short-circuiting the old. And you, I'm going to read a quote from the book. I think it's really, um, really, really good and um, is worth our putting on the table here. Uh, much of this is you. <laughs> much of what we have called polarization or incivility in recent years is something more grave. It is the disagreement over which of the two constitutions shall prevail. The de jure constitution of 1788, with all the traditional forms of jurisprudential legitimacy and centuries of American culture behind it, or the de facto constitution of 1964, which lacks this traditional kind of legitimacy, but commands the near unanimous endorsement of judicial elites and civic educators and the passionate allegiance of those who received it as a liberation, end quote. Um, I think that's really good. I like the that who received it as a liberation seems to be the key to why this is um, the rival constitution is so popular. Yes. And, and, and in that, well, you know, one of the points that I make in the book is that this revolution of the 1960s changes in its nature as it spreads to more groups. And I think that, that, that when the American public believed in 1964 that it was only solving the problem of segregation, you had a country that was about 88% white and 12% black. And there were really not a lot of not a lot of people of other groups there. The the whites who passed that reform felt they were felt they were very much in control of it. Uh, moreover, um, it seemed to be quite clearly delimited, delimited by America's history and what America had done wrong. That you know it was the the remedies would only be as large as the misdeed. When the civil rights style of governing spread to other groups, when it spread to immigrants, to Hispanics, to to gays, um, it became a different type of problem because now you had a much larger pool of beneficiaries. And I would say that the decisive spread was when women found that they could benefit from civil rights because now you have a system that is capable of winning majority, you know, and now you have something that's not just going to be imposed through uh, 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 administration and through courtrooms, but that, that, that in certain cases, people will actually vote for. Right, right. That's a great point. 
We will be right back after this break with Christopher Caldwell and continue our conversation about his book, The Age of Entitlement, America Since the 60s. All right, uh, time for a practicality uh, here uh, as our little break. And today, I'm happy to have uh, with us and literally with us in the same room, we're hoping this works well from a recording perspective, uh, Nicole Rizcala, who is the managing consultant of recruitment and talent development. Recruitment and talent development. Okay, I knew it was something like that. Even though you told me 10 seconds ago, I couldn't remember it. Uh, Okay, Nicole, um, you do a lot of hiring, not just for us here at American Philanthropic, but for uh, many nonprofit organizations. And um, you also, by the way, people should know, you have a master's degree in... Marriage and family therapy. Marriage and family therapy. So you already, you got the psychological thing going on. So tell us um, about hiring mistakes to avoid. We're looking for talent. It's a very tight labor market right now. What should people be sure not to do? Yeah, well... Um... I think the when I was sitting down to think about this before our meeting, I realized that one of my own frustrations is kind of thinking of hiring as a waste of time. And I noticed that a lot of other leaders think that as well, that um, it's kind of something you have to do, but you rather not do. Um, and as relatable as that can be, as much as that makes sense, because hiring is hard to measure success in, it's unpredictable, there's no such thing as the perfect candidate. So it's a hard area to really get excited by. Um, People are complicated and messy. Uh, However, when you approach hiring as a waste of time, (laughs) um, I think you fail to see the investment um, that it is in your organization, in your mission, in your culture. And so I think the first mistake is to avoid thinking of hiring as a waste of time. Why why would someone think of it? I mean... Uh, what what happens if you think of it as a waste of time? Do you just like hire the first person who comes in the door? Like what's what's the... What, what happens because of that? Yeah, you rush. And when you rush, you make mistakes. You make poor decisions. Um, you approach it with that anxiety and that <laughs> disdain. Um, that kind of also infuses the whole process, um, you know, with a lot of unnecessary, um, yeah, just unnecessary uh, displeasure and trying to do something that's really important. People are the most important part of your organization. Everything's impacted by people. And to just go into it with that level of hurriedness and anxiety. Um, yeah, I think it, I think it actually does decrease morale in your organization. All right. So don't disdain <laughs> the process or necessity of hiring. What else we got? That's right. Um, I think the, the second mistake is thinking hiring will make your job easier, right? If I find this person, my job's going to get so much easier. Um, and in some ways that might be true. It might take some load off of your plate or might fix some problem that you're trying to address in the organization. Uh, but as you grow your organization, as you hire, it actually demands more strategy and planning on your end. Um, so it's not only great, this problem is fixed now, but it's also how is this going to allow us to do more, to do better? And so um, I see that a lot with people I work with. Like, I can't wait to hire this person so I don't have to do this anymore. And not really, again, seeing it as you just have a greater investment now. <laughs> you just have more money to manage in the bank and to put that effort it takes to help your organization sustain that level of success. All right. Uh, anything else, Nicole? Yeah, I think the last thing I really wanted to say is, um, because it's a mistake that I've made um, before, is to um, avoid conflating good interviewers with good employees. 
So some of the best employees might be people who don't sing their praises the best during the interview process. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of the worst employees might be those who can really sell themselves quite well. My greatest weakness is that I work too hard. (laughs) Exactly. Don't (laughs) fall for that. so yeah, um, the there there. How can you tell somebody's just a bad interviewer? Um, References like what? Yeah, I think really again, not rushing, slowing down, taking the time to get to them to know them as a person, um, and not only seeing them as someone who has to like finish the obstacle course of this interview process. Um, you will start to know. Wow, this person's humble. They're really smart. Um, they're hungry and ambitious. Uh, but yeah, they just don't talk about themselves very well. And what about the op- opposite with somebody who's just uh, an articulate uh, uh, con artist? Yeah. Then you have hired, um, I think what uh, the table group says is the skilled politician yeah. <laughs> who's self-seeking. How do you winnow them out? Um, yeah. I, I Honestly, that was the mistakes that I've made. Someone who yeah. really wanted the job and could sell themselves. So you do want to vet for humility in the process. And I think taking time again to ask the right questions and see how they show up. If they're just giving you one pitch after another pitch, after another pitch, after another pitch, you're not really getting to know them as a person. And I would pass. Very good. Nicole Rascala, thanks very much. Appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks, Jeremy. All right, we are back with journalist uh, Christopher Caldwell, author of The Age of Entitlement, America Since the 60s. At least that is uh, Chris's most recent book. Um, we were barely scratching the surface of the book yet uh, so far, Chris, but I want to um, get to another point you make um, before we get down. I want to get to the winners and the losers, which are the last two chapters in the book, very long chapters that are very um, introduce a lot of interesting data and facts. Uh, but let me first touch on a point you make that it was during the Vietnam War that uh, elites, progressive elites, you might say, began to look at the at the people, the American people, average Americans, as the problem, rather than you know business tycoons or military leaders or or something else, right? Politicians, it's average Americans; they're the problem. What 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 was that about? Well, I'm, as it specifically connects to Vietnam, I think that there was a a largely elite dissent against the war. There was a dissent against the Vietnam War that was launched in in universities and particularly from elite universities. And it happened very suddenly. I mean, I'm very interested because there's a lot of writing there at the time in Harvard University and, and what happened there in 1966, 67, 68. You know, in 1966, um, Robert McNamara, um, the the defense secretary of of LBJ, um, uh, who was already a pretty visible um, uh, figure for anyone who was following the Vietnam War, came to Harvard and um, gave a talk. And as he was leaving, his car was surrounded by uh, a a few dozen um, Harvard um, student activists. Um, and the reaction was it was, only, it was only briefly, and then he drove off. The reaction was horror on the part of both the Harvard administration and um, and the students. Um, uh, one of the deans uh, apologized to uh, McNamara, and um, a group of students circulated a petition of apology to McNamara that a majority of Harvard students signed. That was in 1966, and things would change extremely quick. Um, you know, I mean. That's a real, not to get 
too diverted here, but that's a real razor's edge of um, of American generational history that you get a very good picture of um, in uh, in in the 2004 presidential election. You know, which was which was which pitted uh, John Kerry, who was born in 1943 and got out of college in 1964, I believe, uh, and then went to Vietnam with George W. Bush, who was born in 1946 and got out in 1968 and did not go to Vietnam. Um, a lot was happening in those, those years. But I would say that you basically had an elite uprising against a sort of what was considered at the time a patriotic project. And um, uh, 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 that pitted the elites against, um, you know, the common people of the of the United States. And rightly or wrongly, when um, the United States signed the Paris Peace, Peace Accords in uh, 1973 and left South Vietnam, and even more so when it evacuated its personnel from Saigon in 1975, the dissenting view of the elites. Um, Seemed to have been vindicated, and then, um, and and then, when Jimmy Carter um, uh, amnestied those who had left um, the country to avoid the draft, it seemed like a total victory for the elites, and that I believe would have like marked the culture of the the generation to come as much as anything. Yeah, the, we we have it right, and uh, uh, average Americans uh, don't. Yeah, that's right. That's right, and and, and we've been proven right. Now, let, let's talk about. Winners and then losers <laughs> in the new order um, that has come to be as a story. And I, you're right. I shouldn't present this as arguments and theses. You're really narrating a, a history here, telling a particular story. Um, we haven't really touched on economics yet, but it's a big part actually of your story, and certainly uh, in these chapters. Um, talk about how the, your the story you tell about globalization, outsourcing, and that sort of thing, how how an actual new economy, uh, I love how you open this chapter, you say, you know, Americans have heard this term, the new economy forever, and it's, it's just hype, it's marketing, but there really was a new economy coming into being in the latter part of the 20th century. What were the, what were the key components there, and how, did, how does that fit into the story? Yeah, you know, I think that that's a general, that's a general rule that, 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 that as often, really new things come out of creating a new structure that that happens as often as it does that new things come out of winning a battle in a you know what i mean there were arguments about the economy in in the 1970s um and i think that to put this as bluntly as possible i think that the people who ran america's businesses thought that american labor had become too expensive for them to afford and um they made the argument that um that you know, it was um, over-regulation, um, over-unionization, um, uh, over-uniformization that was really dragging the American economy down. Um, and I think that they won that argument. Right. They won the argument that said people need to be freer to do things. There should not, you should not be bound to hire union labor. I think that you had a lot of um, states began to re- deregulate in that direction. But they also won the argument against outsourcing and against taking businesses out of the country. And once that happened, it became incredibly tempting to pocket all these wage savings. And that is what basically happened. I mean, and, and, and it's funny that it took so long for the American public to uh, begin to get up in arms about that. That is essentially the story of what has created 21st century 
populism, but I think that it's essentially an accurate diagnosis. I think that American uh, companies that existed and investors who were who were who were forming the companies that did not exist, um, you know, abandoned the twenty thirty dollar an hour um, labor um, of the United States for the dollar fifty an hour labor of the what was then called the third world. Another thing, so that that fits well into sort of the liberation of capital. Uh, is, is, is part of the, the story here, I guess you might put it that way. There's also another liberation that uh, you talk about is liberation from sort of the longstanding idea broadly held across the political spectrum that you should have to, uh, that one has to pay for what one gets. <laughs> and, and and Reagan plays a big role in this and, and later both parties that are part of this, uh, no, we, we'll just borrow and you can just keep borrowing. And um, uh, debt, you know, tripled under Reagan, I think you point out. Um, this idea that we need to be sort of financially prudent sort of goes out the window to the point where, where are we now? 25, 30 trillion dollars in debt? We're, we're, we're 28 trillion is the last figure I saw and I looked at it last week. Yeah. Um, the, um, you know, you can do a certain amount of that when you have the reserve currency, but actually, even if you have the reserve currency, $28 trillion is real money. Um, you know, I'm glad you mentioned that because it's where the word, it's where the title of the book comes from, the age of entitlement, which I think has probably been uh, misunderstood a lot. By age of entitlement, I, I was talking mostly about what the baby boom by its preponderance in the electorate, had been able to vote itself. And one of the things it was able to vote itself was borrowing from future generation. And you can borrow from future generations by running up the, the budget deficit, you know. Um, but there are other ways to borrow from future generations. You know, you can, you, um, the outsourcing is a form of borrowing from future generation because every country needs an industrial infrastructure and if you um, if you um, sort of cash in on the industrial infrastructure you have eventually you're going to have to rebuild it um, no matter what the cost um, so that's what I meant by the age of entitlement and 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 um, you know it used to be that the that in Congress there would be knockdown drag out arguments over what the countries priorities were. There was a party of guns and a, and a party of butter. And it, uh, and it used to be thought that you had to trade off between those two things that you had to, you had to set priorities. But you know, Ronald Reagan, um, uh, somewhat like um, his hero, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, wound up governing on a very different uh, 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 platform than he wound up, than, than, he, than he campaigned on. Um, Reagan's campaign platform was tax cuts, but it was also smaller government and balanced budgets. Um, it turned out to be impossible to do all of those things um, uh, in, his, um, in his first term, uh, but it was the tax cuts that he stuck with most faithfully um, at the price of a certain, you know, at the price of a certain, you know, explosion in the de budget deficit. I want to go back to a point you mentioned about um cashing in on on sort of uh, uh, infrastructure that had been built by previous generations that's one way in which you sort of sort of steal from future generations and i wonder if you would agree that in another way that the boomers sort of accomplished that was um, starting to bowl alone in a sense uh, to sort of pulling back from the civic realm uh, it, it 
if, in the form even of like two income households rather than one income household, uh, you know, pulling back from fraternal associations and so, so forth and, and putting energies toward making money uh, uh, more than anything else. Is that, would you agree this is a sort of another, I mean, I, you don't say this in the book so much. This is just, this is me saying that, but that's another way in which you're sort of depleting the, the, what you're passing on, the inheritance of. Yes. Maybe I don't talk about it enough in the book, although I, I do talk about it in a few places. And I, and I think it's a fascinating subject. The one thing I do say is that there was always an understanding that, um, uh, that, that a family needed a certain amount of resources in order to raise children. And I think that, that, um, there was a, the traditional idea of the family has been much mocked. But there was always an assumption that a single income in a factory ought to be enough to pay for the expenses that a, a mother incurred um, in raising um, children. That is to pay for the opportunity cost of not being in the work in the workplace in order to raise a family. And I think that starting in the 1970s, a new, in, more individualistic um, idea came into. Uh, fashion. And it had the, you know, it had all the um, appealing, um, let's say, uh, lifestyle side of individualism. But it also, it also basically told families that if you want that increment of salary that used to be given to you on the assumption that the, the woman was doing hard work as a mother at home, you're going to have to go out into the workplace and get it. Um, and so I think that's what you're talking about, maybe. That's right, exactly. And um, it just—it's another way in which what's what will be left by uh, the boomer generation, it seems, is somewhat less than than what it could have been. <laughs> you know, I think that 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 part of the um, you know the environmental uh, movement um, today, or the the anti climate change uh, movement today, which obviously has a lot of a lot to admire and a lot to deplore in it. But when you have a, you know, a small town, you know, if you take a, a I, I've thought about this as I've driven through New England small towns. So, so towns that, that, that in my youth um, were the same size, but now they're, they're really crowded with, um, with people. And so a, a, new, a Massachusetts town of, of 20,000 people, you know, in, 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 in 1980, you know, would have had you know, let's just say, you know, 8,000 of those people would have been children and there would have been, you know, only, you know, like, let's say 6,000 families with, you know, 6,000 cars roughly. Now, probably 2,000 of those um, um, uh, people are children and you've got 10,000 families with with 13,000 cars. And so you have a a much more, you have a much, um, you know, you have a much, less fertile, but more environmentally impactful um, community. You have a, you have a, um, a the, you have a community that's re- producing fewer people and more pollution. Right. Right. That's really interesting. And, and there is a, co- of course, there is a cost, of course, a cost to that. So the individualism has produced that world and eventually we're going to have to pay the cost somehow. And that's part of what people are debating in Glasgow now, as they talk about Global warming. The winners in the book, uh, we've we've touched on some of them. Um, politicians didn't have to make tough choices. We didn't touch on sort of uh, businesses that get to benefit from the, all these sort of detailed information and data available on consumers and the internet. 
uh, giants and so forth. There's a lot there. Let's just end here the last few minutes and talk about the losers <laughs> in this new order. Um, who, who would what who would you pick out as um, sort of two or three of the of the groups or um, sectors or what have you that that lose the most with this sort of rival constitution uh, that has arisen since the '60s? So, what is this the story I tell? Um, has a you know this constitutional element in it. People care less about the first, fourth, and sixth amendment, and more about um, uh, pragmatic questions of social equality. Right? Um, there's also a dramatic uh, growth of of inequality, and uh, uh, these two things um, work together. Um, you know. Um, the interesting thing about the 1964 Civil Rights Act is it's kind of built around the idea of outsider groups, of um, uh, you know, of minorities, and this idea of what is a minority. Well, it kind of it kind of changes with the context, but certain people get sort of like just classified as people of privilege under these right. laws and under the narratives that are associated with these laws. So you know. Naturally, um, you know, a white will lose um, relative ground. A heterosexual will lose relative ground. A man will lose relative ground. But you know, the those losses are not spread equally throughout the society. And if you are a white heterosexual male who happens to be, you know, investment an investment bank, well, really, you can use your resources to create whatever kind of Social surroundings for yourself, you like, and so this this issue of um, losers from the Constitution is not really very important um, for them. It becomes important when you're when you're out of money and um, when um, the opportunity to you know right your ship seems to be diminishing, and 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 that would happen to let's say people in. You know, a deindustrialized de place, or in a place that has been, you know, that is the the home of a despised industry, um, like say um, West Virginia, with the uh, you know, with which used to have not just you know coal mining, but also a good number of you know small manufacturing plants, but does not any longer. And what it has now is a lot of the problems that 40 years ago we associated with the urban underclass um you know drugs early death unemployment um and um it's a that is where i let me just say i think it's where i mean they're not the only group the 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 west virginian poor but i would say where um you know where lack of status in the new constitution and lack of money um, overlap. That's where the problem is. And you also point out that <laughs> since one of the features of the new constitution is, um, uh, how should we put this, almost an, in, an indifference toward, if not hostility toward um, free speech, uh, that pointing this out, making the point you made, or, or if those on the margins who have been hurt by the new constitution um, lament or complain about their new status, they are um, not derided or canceled or uh, in, in other ways sort of can further marginalized, right? It's not, um, their voices don't don't count in the new constitution. Yeah, well, now you're bringing up a subject that would really take us a half an hour to, to do justice <laughs> to. I, you know, I would say that right. this problem, this First Amendment problem, I think that it's kind of 
or let's just say this this condescension problem. Let's call it that. You know, um, I think that it's implicit in this way of doing government. The 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 legislation of the 1960s was really emergency legislation. It was it was it was a departure from the usual American way of making law on the grounds that the injustice in the South was um, so severe and so ineradicable that it could not go on for another minute. And, 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 and so the country needed more powerful tools. Now, you can't just use those tools anytime you see fit. You know, I can't, you know, like, you can't say, well, I want to have a fast track special commission and empower the the, the federal government to, to make my birthday a national holiday. In order to do that, you need, you need a real cause and you need a real moral case. And so I think that, 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 that whenever we use the language of rights to liberate someone, we also need to scapegoat someone. I mean, and so in, when you look at, when you look at, at, at the way gay marriage was um, argued for, at the way um, uh, transgender rights is argued for. The people who hold an alternative view, let's call it the traditional marriage, uh, marriage point of view, are cast as being, you know, the moral equivalents of, you know, the Southern sheriffs who sort of right. like kept black school children out of, you know, local schools and, and, and that sort of thing. So, so I do think that there is a, 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 a demonization, demonization inherent in a lot of, um, in a lot of, it is the, it is the flip side of the coin of progress. That's right. Yeah. There has to be a villain who's, who uh, has been keeping, um, uh, somebody, uh, uh, down or from getting their, what, what does do them socially? Let's end with this then. Yeah, I'm, I'm supposed to define civil society because <laughs> that's part of the uh, podcast um, uh, that is its raison d'etre. And uh, what we mean by that is sort of non-governmental, non-commercial associational life. Uh, that's you know it's not not sent, not just familial. It's beyond the family, but it's non-governmental, non-commercial, all the, the sort of Tocquevillian uh, voluntary association stuff that America is so so famous for. What do you foresee? How does this all um, not just historically in the last 50, 60 years, but the fact that now you have sort of adherence of two rival constitutions sort of at each, other, at each other's throats every day, one with more power than the other, at least institutional power. How do you, um, how would you foresee that playing out in America's um, associational life? I know that's a hard question. Oh, yeah, it is a hard question. I wouldn't really want to project it into the future, but I think the main way yeah. you think about it in the in the present um, is um, through, uh, you know, the, the Harvard um, sociologist Nathan Glazer wrote a, a, a number of really magnificent essays um, in the 1970s about American pluralism and American subcommunities. And, um, uh, you know, it is both the glory of these subcommunities and the um, shame of them that they tend to be, um, you know, both very fraternal and very exclusive. There's no, um, there's not really, I mean, you know, there's not really anything, any such thing as a universal fraternity. I mean, that's a, um, and, and 
it has increasingly been the the view of um, you know authorities that that sub communities and you know you know whatever they happen to be you know like Italian war veterans um, clubs or you know yeshivas or community trusts or whatever they're under a presumption of they're suspect to the authorities and I and I think that that's Glazer in the seventies saw that as a tremendous threat to the fabric of American life. I think in his later life, um, he came to see that battle as having been lost, and he came to actually see those groups as actually being gone from American life. It certainly hasn't got changed, the part about being sort of suspect. Uh, but even those groups that are not sort of um, exclusive, it, it, one wonders how much people want to associate with one another um, across strictly partisan or lines if, if um, they think they may be outed or canceled or they can't speak you know, what they really believe, it, it, uh, if there's a sort of mistrust running through the middle of society that seems like that's not um, conducive to sort of flourishing uh, communities uh, and, or, or their associations that constitute them. Well, I mean, I, but I think that it's more than mistrust. I mean, I think that the worry about cancellation comes from a set of incentives that have been built into, you know, both law and, um, and um, you know, our, our, our litigative culture. Right. It's a mistrust based, that has, is based on a solid foundation of fact. <laughs> yeah. But I, I mean, yeah. it's, it is a, it's a, it's a, right. It has a, it has a, uh, a, a, a legal as well as a cultural basis. Uh, Christopher Caldwell, uh, where can people follow you uh, online? Are you on Twitter and all that sort of thing? Nope. <laughs> no, no place. <laughs> Good for you. Yeah, you can, I mean, you can, yeah, you can, yeah, um, you know. I guess read my articles and books, I suppose. That's right. Claremont Review of Books in particular. Um, you can find your writings there, elsewhere, uh, online. And I'm, that's awesome that you're not actually on, on social media. The first guest, I think, has told me that. So wonderful. Um, it, the Age of Entitlement, America Since the 60s is, um, is the book we've been talking about. And I encourage everybody to pick it up and read it. It is wonderful. Uh, thank you for spending time with us today, Chris. Thank you, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. Thank you.